I'm Dr. Fiona Lovely, and this is the Not Your Mother's Menopause podcast. I'm taking the taboos of menopause and perimenopause and bringing light to the dark. No bullshit, no shame. It's time for us to gain a new paradigm in female health, out with the old and in with the new, and I'm bringing fresh perspectives from someone in the arena. I've been practicing women's health for nearly 20 years, and I'm spilling the tea on what it means to live at midlife, knowing that the best is yet to come. I'm sharing my Gen X approach to living through this transition. Sassy, a bit sweary, and always honest. Tactical tips and instantly usable information is my aim. I hope to make you laugh and that you learn something new that helps you embrace the change. Together, we bring power to the Perry. Onward to the podcast. Dr. Fiona Lovely and the Not Your Mother's Menopause podcast. And I have a really cool interview for you today. Recently, I sat down with Susan Salinger, who is the author of a book called Sidelined. And she and I had a really interesting conversation about women's health and essentially the common decisions women make that undermine our health and our health care. Woof! This is a great conversation. And you know, when I was reading this book, I think I do a pretty good job of asking for what I need. And there was some really great tips in here. And I found myself in a situation where I was asked able to ask for better help. And I thought, this is fascinating. You know, for those of us that that are informed about women's health, you would think that we would do it right all the time, but that is simply not the case. So I'm going to encourage you to pick up a copy of Susan's book called Sidelined. Susan Salinger, again, is her name. Susan was born and raised in Los Angeles. She attended UCLA to study English. After graduation, she worked alongside her husband, Fred, for 25 years in their production company, Salinger Films, which produced corporate training and development films distributed worldwide. Today, Susan is 80 and she lives in Northern California. But let me tell you something. Go take a look at her on social media. She does not look like she's 80. (laughs) Girlfriend is doing all the things right. Susan Salinger is the author and researcher behind Sidelined, How Women Manage and Mismanage Their Health. Sidelined examines the many ways in which some women manage and sometimes mismanage their health care. Oh my God, I'm so excited to share this one with you. (laughs) Please go in and have a listen. And I just want to remind you that if you enjoy this format, you may also enjoy our video format interviews. They're all available on our Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash Dr. Fiona Lovely, which I will link in the show notes. And a further reminder, pop over to my website, which is drlovely.com to sign up for our newsletter. And again, super excited about this interview. Please uh, enjoy Uh, take notes, listen with an open heart, and um, let me know if I can bring you something new and exciting. Now, onto the interview, but first, a word from our sponsor. 
Now, I'm sure you've heard of AG1 or Athletic Greens, not just on this podcast. There's good reason for it. It's a comprehensive all-in-one nutritional powder that helps fill the gaps in your diet, essentially providing some nutritional insurance, if you will, on a daily basis, specifically supporting immunity, energy, recovery, and gut health. It has 75 highly absorbable vitamins and minerals, high-quality whole food-sourced ingredients, including adaptogenic herbs, probiotics, prebiotics, and medicinal mushrooms. It comes straight to your home, and if you order through our specific podcast link, which is athleticgreens.com slash Fiona Lovely, I'll leave it in the show notes for you. Athletic Greens will include for free five free travel packs and a one-year supply of liquid vitamin D3, K2. Check them out. Hello, everybody. Uh, This is Dr. Fiona Lovely and the Not Your Mother's Menopause podcast. And I'm thrilled today to be joined by Susan Salinger, who has written a beautiful book that I have just finished reading and I can't wait to go back and read again. The book is called Sidelined, How Women Manage and Mismanage Their Health. And uh, I'm excited to get started my conversation here with Susan, but I thought I'd read a little bit of a blurb about this book. So Susan explores in this book how women often hesitate to call the doctor when we don't feel well. And we worry that the doctor visit will take time away from our families or our work. We hesitate to ask doctors the necessary questions and don't always comply with the doctor's instructions. Mm Susan's research reveals how conflicted many women are about the medical decisions they ultimately make. Again, a fascinating read. I couldn't recommend it more highly. So Susan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, tell me, how did you get, how did you find yourself writing this book? How did you get there? Well, it's kind of a saga, which I, you know, try to make a long story short, but many, many years ago, I had, I agreed to have some exploratory surgery that I was positive I didn't need. I had recently uh, changed medications and with the new medication, I just started experiencing some vaginal bleeding and the doctor was afraid that he, I think he was afraid of ovarian cancer. And I was almost positive that it was the medication. But I mean, so we ran a bunch of tests and the, the what happened is I got frightened. He got frightened because they couldn't find anything. So he said, we better, you know, go in and see what's going on in there. And I knew it was the wrong thing to do. But not only did I agree to it, but I insisted it be done sooner rather than later. And so, okay, they went in, they found nothing. I went back on the old medication and, you know, lived healthily ever after. But that was years ago and I had little kids and I was working, so life goes on. And then when I retired, which lasted maybe 12 seconds, it was the wrong decision for me. I have too much energy. So I went back to school and took some anthropology classes. And for a a term project, I interviewed women that had had hysterectomies. I'm not quite sure how I landed there, but I did. And they too had, uh, many of them had agreed to the surgery, even though they weren't sure that they needed it. So of course that triggered my memory. And I began to wonder how as women, do we make our medical decisions? 
So I interviewed about, I guess, 50, 60, I don't know, a lot of women and found that all many of them had also agreed to medical procedures, medications, whatever, that they really didn't want. And I began to do a lot of research. And I looked at all of these women that I interviewed had different diseases. I did that on purpose. And yet I found six or five, I think it was five or six things that they had in common, behavioral behaviors that they had in common. And I thought, I got to write a book about this. You know, I learned in anthropology, there was, there's some wonderful medical information for women, but academics write for each other. So it's really not out there in the public sphere. And I thought, I got to help get it out there. So that's kind of a roundabout way that, you know, I got into the book. I love it. And I love what you just said. Academics write for each other. That's so true. Yeah, the average the average person has no interest in trying to wade through medical research. Right, right, right. So we're left with uh, goofy folks like you and me <laughs> <laughs> so to try to be the filter between right. the medical research yes. and what the, 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 the tidbits, the tactical things that we can actually do to help, which actually reminds me, I made myself a note. I wanted to tell you, I love the way you end each chapter with what we can do about it section. Thank you. Love that it. took work. It, it all did, but that was hard. Yes. And you know, <laughs> for me, I love the, the tactical bits. I love for the podcast. I always end with a list when it's just me recording about, yes, you know, yes. whatever topic we're talking right. about. I always end with a list of these are the things you can do right now because information's all fine and dandy, but it's action is where things make the difference. Right. right. And there is, there are a lot of things we can do to better manage our own health. And I think that, you know, that's an, it's an important part of the book. You're absolutely right. And thank you for that. Yeah. And, you know, I have to say, uh, I've been in women's healthcare now 20 years. Um, I feel like I've seen it all. And <laughs> even though I'm the expert, I'm getting air quotes here. I'm right. the expert. Um, I read the first the first chapter, uh, you, there are six things that hold women back. Not right. to spoil it, right. but there are six things. I read the first one. I went oh shit, I'm doing this too. <laughs> of course, we all do. We yes. All do. So I, I literally had a conversation with my husband and I'm like, this is what I need. I've not been telling you how much I need to get better sleep and how you can help me with that. And what surprised me was how uh, even though he's amazing supportive, I'm not surprised that he was supportive, but we were able to have a conversation, actually do some new things that we hadn't done. Oh, before. I'm so glad. I'm so glad to hear that. That makes me so happy. <laughs> and, and it's true. And so I encourage my listeners to pick up this book because as you are reading through these chapters, you will see and hear yourself so many times. And you will also be amazed at how shocking your behavior is when you see it through that lens, that mirror, right? We don't realize it. And, and actually, as I was reading Sidelined, I was struck by how shame and guilt play a role in how women access healthcare, play a massive, massive role. Right, right. And I, I want to ask you about that, but I'm going to read a quote from page 46 first. So you say, Sadly, the tendency to view illness as punishment for past behavior is common. You go on in the next page to say, we've been conditioned as women for thousands of years to think something is inherently wrong with us. Right. 
So talk right. to us about that, please. Oh, that's actually going to be part of my next book. Let's see, where do I begin? Um, I'll start with a, a, a quick story. I put together a couple of focus groups, mostly because I wanted some geographical diversity. Um, I had the information I needed, but I didn't have it from different parts of the country, and I thought that was a problem. So what I learned from these groups had nothing to do with my plans. I mean, the best laid plans, et cetera. But most of the women in the two groups, in each group, in the two groups I put together, had never talked with their illness about with anybody else other than their doctor. And they said they were so ashamed of being ill. And that really just blew me away. Because, well, first of all, I don't do that when I'm sick. You know, the whole world knows. <laughs> There's not a quiet bone in my body, but, it was, but I was really just so amazed and it turned out. And then when I went back through my notes with the women I had actually interviewed as well, so many of them blamed their illness on stress and they thought that their illness was a was was the they got sick because they weren't managing their stress. They just couldn't manage their lives. And that's what made them ill. So when they did become ill, they felt it was almost like a newsflash, a public acknowledgement that, oh, look, this woman can't manage her life. Look how sick she is. We just tend to blame ourselves. And it has such a long medical history. And what also is fascinating about the medical history part of it is it transcends cultures. Women have just been denigrated and dismissed really universally. Um, the Dutch went, it was the Dutch called having daughters like a cellar full of sour beer. And the Chinese called daughters maggots in the rice. I mean, this is not a complimentary thing, you know? And I, I, that, that did surprise me. I did not, I knew of course that in the medical system today, women do tend, women are misdiagnosed and tend to be misdiagnosed more than men. I, but I didn't know that women were denigrated, you know, the world over. That surprised me. It turns out for centuries. Yes. Your book, chapter seven, I think was such an eye-opening read for me. That's my favorite chapter. <laughs> I love writing it. And forever for your listeners, that's the chapter on medical history. And our history is, I mean, it's just been not a very unhappy relationship with the medical community historically. Yes. Aristotle yes. called us leaky vessels because we cry and we menstruate. I mean, it, it just goes on and on and on. I know. And, and I want to read this, uh, what you say on page 136 about this, speaking about how this history is connected to the, sh how the history leads to the shame and guilt that we feel. You say the shame that often accompanies illness can become so internalized that we tend to forget that the narrative is an imaginary one. Right. Instead, we nurture and feed it with self-doubt until it's so seamless so much a part of us that we may not realize it's there. And shame is like garbage. It keeps piling up. It can pollute our decisions and taint them with our misperceptions about ourselves. We may end up making decisions that under different circumstances we may not have made and which we might later regret. Oh my gosh, it literally taints how women see yeah. ourselves in the world. And it's not our story. Right. Right. It's just, do you remember you're too young? You wouldn't remember the Gloria Steinem. <laughs> I do. Give me a kiss for those of you that don't know. <laughs> but 
but Gloria Steinemann in the book somewhere wrote this wonderful thing of men could menstruate. I wish I could quote it better, but I can't. But basically, you know, it would be when it would be a question of how much blood you 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 menstruated, and it, I, I can't do it. But it's in the book, and it's hilarious, and it's so true. Oh my it's goodness! So well, and I think we've got this this thing going on where women go to the doctor, and we essentially quite often I know I have had this happen to me several times personally and I hear my patients not a day that goes by in the office I don't have a patient tell me another story where they essentially get medically gaslit for going to get help for menopausal symptoms yes and you know we have to remember that um, I know I'm using big words but the truth is um, medicine the training of medicine has uh, misogyny and paternalism baked right into it. And yes. so much so that, you know, many of us that have trained in those systems don't even see it until somebody else points it out to us. It's so baked in. And, and I think in a way, women are just showing up with the history, the baggage of all these uh, hundreds of years of being told that we are less than we are second-class citizens right. we're leaky right. we're you know all of these things I really enjoyed that leaky comment when you made it in the book but but um <laughs> but it it just it makes sense because and I think this the reason why I'm, I, I want us to discuss this is because I think when we can see it as a story that started before we did yes we can yes. see that it's not our baggage Right. We don't put that on the backpack of all the other crap we're carrying around. Right. Yeah. No, that's so true. But I think that, and I agree with everything you just said, but I think it's also important to be careful because while it's true that women do get gaslit, but that's actually a pejorative term. And there are some doctors that do. I mean, I've had my own experiences. But on the other hand, I think it's important that as women, we recognize that the medical community knows less about our bodies than they do about men, men's bodies. And there's some really good reasons for that. And let me just list them for a second, because I, I think it's important to, to get it. And the first thing is women were left out of clinical studies for years and years. Now, it's still much, it's much better now. But because women were omitted from these studies, we have no idea how women, for example, react to a heart attack or react to have what side effects they have to a particular medication. And as I said, it's better now, but we're still living with that history. And our diseases, because we get so many autoimmune diseases, they're much more difficult to diagnose. We have to remember, and when I, I shouldn't say remember because I didn't know this until I did the research, but there's about 20, 30, 40,000 diseases out there, and those are the ones we know about, and many of them share similar symptoms. So for the doctor, an accurate diagnosis can be like looking for a needle in a haystack. It can be a really tricky thing. And not only that, I mean, if, excuse me if I go on and on, but it, I think that doctors to a certain extent are getting a bad rep and, and it's, it isn't always true. But women's diseases get a lot less research money. Um, prostate cancer, for example, gets much more money for research than cervical cancer or uterine cancer or ovarian cancer. And those are much more fatal, but yet it's prostate cancer that gets the money. 
and also women researchers get published less, less often and also are at the bottom of the funding barrel. They get less money, they, get, they are published less. So if you're a woman doctor or scientist researching a woman's disease, you are gonna find yourself at the bottom of the barrel. And I think all of those are reasons that some of this, and now I'm doing air quotes, that some of this gaslighting exists. Um, although, as I said, I've had my own issues. Absolutely. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm just trying to, to give a bigger picture to for it. Yes, absolutely. And and fair. I mean, things are changing with medical training. Yes. Um, but, you know, the reality is, is that once doctors are out of school and in practice, a good portion of their education comes from the pharmaceutical companies. So if there yes. is not a pill for it, right. then you may or may not have it. So then the doctor, of course, not having had, and I'm talking GPs at this point or general yes, practitioners, right. may have had very, very small amount of um, training in menopause. This is a podcast on menopause. So that's what we'll talk about here. But um, they have to have their own personal interest in it to seek out that training. Right, right. right? So I, I was reading yesterday that something, uh, 30% of Americans are somewhere in the menopause transition. And 90% of doctors have zero training on yeah, what read. to do. Did you see there was a great article in the New York Times? I called, did. You saw that dismissed. Spectacular. Yeah. Spectacular. Absolutely. Spectacular article. Yep. Yeah. Really good. I'm glad you saw it. I did. For all of your listeners, do, do research it because it's fabulous. It's called Dismissed. I forgot the author or the reporter. And I, I, I should have it right here, but I don't. Yes, you keep talking. I'll look it up. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to. Well, I'll tell you a funny story talking about misunderstanding. It's in the history chapter, which, as I said, I had such a great time writing. But when in, in many years ago, I don't know if it was not medieval times. I think it was Victorian times. Anyway, when when a woman uh, got menop became menopausal, they thought that she would implode. She would sort of. Do you do you remember that? And there was this one poor woman, Cornelia Bandy, and they found bits and pieces of her all over, and they were sure it was menopause. I mean, I I don't know what happened, but it was spontaneous combustion. Isn't that what you said? <laughs> Term. Thank you so much. Right. I mean, 80% of us experience hot flashes. I'm sure that these women are feeling like, hey, we must <laughs> explode at some point. Isn't that hilarious? I know. It I is. loved it. I just loved it. So I posted the, uh, the, the article is called women have been misled about menopause and the writer is Susan Dominus. It was yes. in uh, the New York times and it is posted on my Instagram. For those of you that are watching, uh, following me on Instagram, a couple weeks back, uh, at Dr. Fiona Lovely is the Instagram. Um, oh, you know, I just, I'm so enjoying this conversation because, you know, to me, Susan, I think the power, and I've always feel this way about when I'm creating content for, to share is the power for us is when we, we can separate ourselves from the story that we've either been con conditioned to believe. Yeah or we've somehow learned along the way right. from our experience. And so I think that's what's so powerful about Sidelines, your book, is that you actually say, okay, this is where this stuff is coming from. Now, take a step back and go, okay, how can I take better care of myself? 
And I want to talk just for a minute. You, you, you gave me a wonderful lead in without even knowing it. Thank you so much. But I want to talk about second opinions, because I think that's the most, perhaps the most important chapter in the book. Remember, as I was saying earlier, there's a, a lot of diseases out there and a, and, a, and a diagnosis is an interpretation. So for example, there have been studies that the same symptoms can look like uh, stomach problems to a gastroenterologist, stress to a psychologist. We see what we expect to see. So I think it's very important when your diagnosis or, and or uh, prescriptions treatment program is a serious one, you need to get a second opinion. And I think insurance pays for that. I'm not sure because I'm not an insurance person. But I think it's a very important thing to do. Um, you don't want, women are misdiagnosed more, more than men are. There's about 12 million of us Americans that are misdiagnosed each year. It's one of the leading causes of death. And women are misdiagnosed more than men. So you really need to get a second opinion. And the second thing that I think is so important to do is get the clinical name of your disease, write it down, have the doctor write it down so that you can go home and hopefully you have a computer or your library does, and you can research the disease. Do, do my symptoms, does this feel right to me? Is, is this really what I'm experiencing? I think it's a very important thing to do and especially with medication. Um, because there are side effects. I'll tell you a personal story of mine. Um, I, I had a, I had an, it turned out to be an arthritic thumb, but I don't, I've never had pain. I'm one of those very lucky people. And all of a sudden my thumb began to hurt. So, you know, because I've been writing this book and of course I have every disease I read about, I was sure it was cancer of the thumb just because that's who I am. All right. So I go to the hand doctor and she says, no, it's just arthritis, took an x-ray and gave me, uh, offered me some medication. And I said, great. And I'm on Lexapro for depression. So I said, does this medication interfere with Lexapro? And she said, no, absolutely not. So being the researcher and the neurotic person that I am, I went home and researched it. And she was mostly right. It doesn't, 99% of the time it doesn't. But that 1%, you can get a brain bleed. And I thought, I'm not risking it. If you're the 1% and I get a brain bleed because of a sore thumb, no way. The, the, the risk far outweighed the benefits. So I, you know, threw the prescription away and, you know, my thumb turned out to be just fine. I got lucky. It, I got over it. But the point is she didn't mention it. And I can understand why, because 99% of the time I, she would have been right, unless you're in the 1%. So I think it's really important to research your disease and your medication, your treatments, whatever. You want to know the benefits and risks of each procedure, medication, et cetera. So that's my my do good message for the day. <laughs> your PSA, I dare say your book is full of them. But yeah. um, what you said about second opinions is so, so true. And and uh, uh, I'm here in Canada. <clears throat> Some of my listeners here in Canada with me or Australia or the UK. And we in the socialized system, we oh, right. tend not to act for ask for a second opinion you're like kind of like oh we're getting it for free we're not really we pay with with our taxes but you know yeah. it depends on your mindset about that but right. we're 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 getting this so we don't we first of all you have to overcome all the all the reasons why women won't go and ask for help but then you have to do it again and ask for i, I would like a different opinion and that feels confrontational to us doesn't it 
Well, that's what's so interesting is that women get second opinions less than men do. Men are better at this than we are. And every almost every woman I talked to said, oh, I couldn't do that. I don't want to hurt the doctor's feelings. He's the prof- or she is the professional. I'm not. I don't want to be rude. One woman said to me, I'll never get a second opinion. I, I'd be afraid that I would get a black mark against me in my chart and it would follow me you know, throughout my career. Um, it's they work we're we're socialized to play nice you know and people women feel that getting second opinions is is not nice dis nice unnice whatever the word is and and truly we we really don't want to hurt anybody's feelings and i think that that is doing ourselves a serious disservice oh i i absolutely agree by the way something you just said made me think of Early in the book, you talk about women not wanting to call for an ambulance because they're worried oh, that their house is a mess. Yes, yes. I know. Could you imagine? So just so your, your listeners know, there was a study done. This was actually quite a while back. But nevertheless, um, researchers or somebody came in and asked women who had experienced heart attack symptoms, how many of them would call 911 and only 50% said they would call for help. The other 50% said they wouldn't want the paramedics to see their messy house and they didn't want to worry anyone. So, yeah. yeah. And just so everybody knows, you have when you have a heart attack, you have about, there's a window of about four hours you have to get some help because you can do serious damage to your heart muscle after that. So you want to get help as quickly as possible. So, you know, remember that everybody and don't worry about you. Don't get out the vacuum. Just call 911. <laughs> Meet them on the driveway if you have to. Right, like, you just... got it. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. No, absolutely. On the front lawn, it's fine. It's soft. <laughs> Whatever it takes. Right. Yes. 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 <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, something else uh, I would like to bring up that you mentioned in the book, I page 66, I have written here, the doctor's bias, where you talk about the study, where I'm just going to read my notes here. Uh, if a woman was expressive, animated, and wearing bright colors, by the way, I'm wearing hot pink, Susan's wearing red, <laughs> and jewelry, which we both have on, right? she was more likely to be diagnosed as anxious with panic attacks even with a clear cardiac presentations, yeah. uh, presentation and the doctors were less likely to pursue a cardiac workup. That one actually stopped me in my tracks. I literally had to put the book down and think about um, as myself, as a, as a doctor, how do I see my patient patients coming in the office? How do I receive them? And, and where is that sort of baked in bias coming from? Because I didn't see it until then. So I'd love to talk about that. Yeah, well, and there was another study which supplements or enhances the one you just mentioned, where a, a group of men and women patients had exactly, it was fictitious, they designed it, and they had exactly, they were given exactly the same symptoms, they all had the same risk for a, a cardiac event of some sort. And in, uh, as soon as stress was mentioned, only 15% of the women were able to get, were recommended to get a cardiac workup. Whereas before stress, both the men and women were recommended equally uh, for the cardiac workup. But as soon as the women, <laughs> as soon as stress was introduced, all the women were just only 15% of them did. I was horrified by that. 
And here's what you can do about that, because I think that is a little more, much more typical than it should be. Although again, I think it's getting better. But when, when your doctor says your symptoms are due to stress, you wanna say two, if you're in the emergency room, insist on an EKG. Don't let them send you home with um, antidepressants or whatever. And if the, AK, if the EKG is normal, that's terrific. And if it isn't, you got it, you know, that, that's really an important thing. The other thing you always wanna ask is what else could this possibly be? So, you know, you don't, you don't wanna be confrontational. Yeah, it might be stress. What else could it be, do you think? And that hopefully will lead the doctor down a different path. Um, yeah. And there's been some new research, which I actually, I just read yesterday, that you, women seem to do better in, at least in the, in the cardiology part of this uh, with a woman doctor. So if you're in emergency, for example, try to get a female doctor if you can. Uh, it, isn't, it isn't always true. My cardiologist happens to be a man and he's just wonderful. So, I mean, it isn't a universal principle, but just the research does show that women do better with female doctors, at least for, for heart attacks. And, you know, that was a really interesting part of the book too, reading that as well. My husband and I have always been sort of amazed that our entire group of, of doctors, whether it's our GP or our dentist or our chiropractors, all female with the exception of one. That's so and interesting. Yeah. So when I ask his opinion on it, he says, well, I feel so much more better cared for holistically cared for yes. by my female practitioners than I ever did with uh, before. And so, you know, I, I, I do want to say things are changing with this because the men are becoming aware. And I like to say, your generation and mine, we're not the ones to sit idly by and be quiet. You know, Gen X is mine. So I, we're loud. If right. we have somebody tell us, um, you know, we show up with symptoms and we're told we'll get used to it. This is aging, you know, this right. is, or I, your tests are normal. Here's an antidepressant, all of that. We're more likely to stand up and say to hell with that. Like right. I am not standing by. And, and I think that's part of the reason why we're really starting to see the needle move on this, why we're mm -hmm. starting to see this national press, not only that beautiful article in the New York Times, but there was one written in the Australian uh, daily paper as well. I'm not sure which one, uh, pardon me uh, for not knowing that, but <clears throat> just uh, as I was saying to you, Susan, just this week, uh, the Not Your Mother's Menopause podcast and my work in women's health is featured in the Globe and Mail here in Canada, which is our largest paper. And so we're starting to see that. We're starting to see that big press coming. And I and I think that's that's a really important thing. And I, I honestly think it's because my generation is not willing to sit by and say, yes. oh, it's okay. Yeah. You'll get over it. Don't talk about it. We'll sweep it under the rug. Whereas I remember my grandmother's generation um, you definitely did not talk about hormonal issues. No, no way. No. You're right. And incidentally, for everybody out there, I love being in menopause. Now I'm through it, you know, but I absolutely, it's the, one of the best things that's ever happened to me. 
So there's light at the end of the tunnel. I didn't have many issues. My kids are having many more problems than I ever did. I did have hot flashes for a while. But for me, my periods were always irregular. So I, they, I could only count on them. They would always come when, when I would go on vacation or wear white pants. I mean, it was statistically improbable. <laughs> there it was. So for me, not to have to worry and be able to plan a trip and actually, you know, not be miserable on it. It's just the best thing that's ever happened. So there you go. <laughs> I have, I've always said mother, mother nature has a sense of humor. Like women, okay. It's been six months since I've had a period. Am I good? Do I not need to carry temp? I'm like, are you out of your mind? That's like challenging the goddess. Don't do that. <laughs> that's right. I was, but now I'm thrilled. I just want, and I'm still thrilled, you know? Yes. So tell me more about that. What was the, tell me about the gifts of getting through that symptomatic phase of perimenopause. What are the gifts? Please share. Oh, I will. I will. First of all, you don't have hot flashes. I every now, I mean, I'm 80 years old. So I, every now and then I will still get one, which surprises okay, me. Okay. You if you guys cannot see Susan, you need to look her up because what she, I'll have what she's having. She's not looking 80 years old. But <laughs> Are you nice? Now I'm throwing you a kiss. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, as I said, I don't have to worry about a thing. And I mean, that's really the benefit of it. It is when I would get my periods because they were irregular, because they weren't every four weeks, they would be quite heavy. So I couldn't do this. I couldn't do that. I mean, you know, it was, it was awkward. And I, I used to, I, when we were in business, I'd sit in a conference room and hope to gosh that I wouldn't stain the chair. Or, you know, you can't get up in a room full of men with your butt all bloody, you know. Um, it was very, this is just, it's just wonderful. That's all I can say. <laughs> if I could sell it, I would. <laughs> it's great. I hear, I hear that there's like a clarity that comes on the other side of all that that hormonal dance. Well, you know, I never had the break. At least I don't recall having one podcast I was on. The the doctor said, maybe you just don't remember. And, you know, she may be absolutely right. But I don't recall having the brain fog at all. I really don't. But my hot flashes, I only lasted about four or five weeks. And they came right after my mother died. My mom died suddenly and I stopped menstruating. I mean, there there had to have been a connection. It was too odd. So I I think mine was an unusual situation. But after after it, I mean, once you're in menopause, I'm not unusual at all. It's fabulous. Just fabulous. I love it. I I look (laughs) forward to that. I really do. And, And there's not enough women talking about what happens on the other side of this. And there's a lot of women who think that, we're going to have these symptoms that we get in perimenopause for the rest of our lives, which can be up to 40% of our life, 40 or, or more percent of our lifetime. Well, you know, I'll tell you something really interesting. I I had a chapter in the book and it ended up on the cutting room floor on menopause. But, and as I said, I interviewed a bunch of people. So I tried to interview women about menopause. I had more trouble finding women to interview about menopause to tell me the difficulties of it than any other chapter in the book. Isn't that interesting? They all said, and and I, I mean, I just, these were random women. I mean, it wasn't anybody I knew, but well, yes, it was. Some of them were. 
were. But nevertheless, they all said that they didn't, they thought it was a difficult time in life. One woman said something very insightful. She said, it's a difficult time in life for all of us because it's generally when a comes about the time our kids leave home, our parents start to get older. And she said, it's hard to separate. She said, for me, for her, it was hard to separate what was just, how did I call age trauma versus menopausal symptoms. Um, wow. But it was interesting. I really had a little bit of a problem. And usually people were more, I, I, I mean, I had more interviewees than I knew what to do with, generally speaking. So isn't that interesting? I mean, it sort of goes against what we're reading now. That is fascinating. I know. Me. I thought so too. I did. Fascinating. Yeah. Now, Susan, please pick up that chapter and write a book around it. I'm actually it. Uh, doing a second edition or a new book. I haven't decided yet. And it is going to be included. And the Lovely. Susan Thomas article, you know, really spurred me. I, I thought to myself, I got to do this too. She's right. Um, yes, that's please. A great article, everybody. And and, and it seems like the best time to ask you as the wise one in this conversation. I love that. What, what if, it's true. <laughs> Let's embrace it. I do. Let's embrace it, right? <laughs> we've, got this, we've got this transition strip down the middle of our lives that we can call a thousand different right. things, menopause, right. transition, perimenopause, whatever, midlife, <laughs> all of those things. And then there's this other side that nobody talks about. Right. So. Yes. As the wise one in this conversation, what do you want us to know as the perimenopausal community? Again, what do you want us to know about what's coming? Maybe what advice you would give to your younger self? Well, I think there's a couple of things not to know, but to realize. Let me, let me put a different framework on it because the symptoms, of course, obviously they go pretty much go away um, for sure. But it's a time of life let's say you're by the time your symptoms are over you're what 55 60 65 your kids hopefully have left home or are settled in one form or another your parents are either doing okay or they're not life settles down you know each stage of life and I as I said I'm 80 and I have found this even at 80 each stage has its its benefits and it's what's the not risk because that's not the right word but gains and losses can I put it that way and I, life just settles down. It gets quieter. There's no teenagers in my house. My grandchildren come and then they go home, you know, or when my kids come, they, it's wonderful. They come for dinner and we sit and we have a little cheese or a little hors d'oeuvre and a glass of wine. And then they go home. You know, it's, it's glorious in that sense. My house is clean. I I'm take care of nobody but myself. My husband recently passed away. So I take care of nobody but myself. And there's a, it's, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, how do I say this? I'm, I'm a lover of narcissism because it's just wonderful. I think about me, I worry about me and I am my primary problem, joy, whatever you want to call it. And I think that that all goes along with menopause because it means we're getting older and things settle. There's no teenage angst in my house anymore. My kids will call up and they'll say, mom, I've got this problem. And I go, gee, that's too bad. How are you going to handle that? And then I hang up the phone. It's glorious. <laughs> so truly, it's a, it can be a lovely time in your life, particularly if you have your health and your kids are settled and all of that. Now, of course, it, you know, you can be sick and in pain and your kids can be a mess. I mean, you know, we all have that too, but 
nevertheless, it's a very peaceful time in life. And I think that what's important, it can be a very peaceful time in life. And I'm one of the lucky ones and I'm the first to admit it. Um, but keep that in mind. There's, there's, there's a light at the end of the tunnel or the rainbow or whatever that expression is. And there's so much, yes, it did. And there's so much life after you stop having symptoms, right? Look, I'm I'm 80. I'm starting a second book. I just published my first one. I'm exercising. I'm having a dinner party Saturday and I'm, I'm I'm very much alive, you know, Um, it has nothing to do with age. And do you think that, you know, I'm interested to know what you attribute uh, that to, and I see in you a deep purpose. I really what thank you I attribute it to really good luck because I am not I'm seriously healthy you know I'm not sick and I have really good genetics neither were my well my dad died of prostate cancer that's not going to be my issue you know um yeah no I, I have a lot of worries that's not one of them um I think good genes good luck and I work at it I, I have a very nice mostly a good diet I exercise four times a week. I do Pilates and I do weightlifting. In fact, go you, you all should go to my website, grandma.gains, G-A-I-N-S. I'm sure I could bench press most of you. you know? <laughs> I can't open my own applesauce, but I'm terrific with the weights. <laughs> I have to get one of those jar openers now that my husband's not here. Anyway, but I'm very strong. And I think that's important. I mean, I really do. And I think that's what I I attribute it to good luck, good genes and hard work. I'm so inspired by that. Thank you for sharing (laughs) that. That's wonderful. But let me ask you, what information, what what advice would you give your younger self? Knowing what you know I would tell myself to exercise even more, stop canceling. I really don't like it. And I work out with a trainer, but I do it. And I should have forced myself to do it even more because then I would be even stronger. And I would watch my diet. I, there's, I know more about food today than I did then. I'm not a vegetarian. I try, but I do. I have cut down on beef and I do eat some fish. And I have. I try to have one or two. Veg, my daughter's a vegetarian, so I'll eat there once or twice a week. And I call it my my healthy night. You know. Um, yes. But I think that I would just, I'm trying to think if there's anything else, you know, because I didn't really find myself or know what I wanted to be when I grew up. Can I put it that way? Until I started writing this book. I'm a writer. And I, even my husband and I were in the corporate training film business. We made films for business and industry. And although I write this, wrote the scripts, I never considered my, this is just my personal journey, but I never considered myself a writer. I considered myself a businesswoman. It never occurred to me I was a writer until I started taking the anthropology classes. And UCLA was so impressed with my writing they said well basically you know why don't you write a book and it had never occurred to me um so you just never know what's I think that's what I would say you never know what's around the corner you have to leave yourself open to opportunity I mean you know here I went to to UCLA to go back and get a PhD in something I didn't care what but being retired didn't work for me it was driving my family crazy so I went back to school and um, in fact they said if I didn't go do something they were going to shoot me you know I was driving them nuts. 
Um, so anyway, I went back to school and just took a bunch of classes, fell into anthropology, it fell into the book. You just, you know, who would have thought that taking one or two classes would lead to a, a whole new career? At, at that point, I was 50 or 60. Um, it's just, you never know what's around the corner and you have to keep trying. Life has a lot of opportunities and sometimes we don't see them. They're right in front of our face and we may not see them. I mean, I wrote the scripts for years. Never occurred to me I was a writer. I didn't think of myself that way. Talk about, like we were talking earlier about fictional narratives. You know, the stories we tell ourselves are not necessarily the accurate ones or the permanent ones. They can be changed. Oh, that, that answered you better. That was a better answer. <laughs> I like that. It was <laughs> was all good it was all useful for us and um, what's just struck me is that you call yourself a writer which you didn't actually identify with until you were in your 60s yeah I'm thinking maybe mid 60s how's that I'm a late bloomer let me tell you yes but fantastic because many of us feel like our lives are essentially over that we have not done the fun stuff that we've spent all our time with this reproductive phrase. And now we're right. in this right. like, symptomatic milieu. That's not very nice to be honest. Right. So right. this is so inspiring. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, you're so welcome. I just think it's so important to keep living and keep moving. You know. <laughs> oh yes. Well, I have to say I, thoroughly enjoyed reading this book. Uh, the book is called Sidelined, How Women Manage and Mismanage Their Health by Susan Salinger. And I want to thank you for birthing this book, Susan, because you have brought to light some issues in women's health that we really weren't looking directly at. And you've written it in such a way it's accessible and that you've got these usable tidbits. And uh, to to botch a quote from Maya Angelou, when we know better, we do better. And I think True. this is important work. Thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. And thank you for this wonderful conversation. I really enjoyed it. It was really fun. That, thank you. <laughs> As did I. Susan, if people want to know uh, more about you, where can they go to find out? Well, in Canada, that did you say it was Indigo? Yeah, Indigo yes. has it in Canada. Amazon has it in the, well, Amazon probably has it everywhere. It's actually worldwide, I think. And any bookstore. I mean, wherever books are sold is where you can find it or they'll order it or whatever. And Salinger is spelled S-A-L-E-N-G-E-R. It's an uh, unusual spelling, but there it is. Um, so I hope everybody enjoys it. And oh, you can mentioned I say one more thing. Can yes. I say I left out the most important thing? There's a resource list at the back of the book that is really invaluable. I have it organized by category. So when I said earlier, do your research, I've really done it for you. Go to the back of my book if you want to look, know how to check on your doctor's credentials or your hospital or whatever. It's all there for you. So that's really important. Okay, done. <laughs> Thank you for compiling that. I forgot to mention it too. It's excellent. It's an excellent, excellent resource. So thank, thank you. you for bringing this information to uh, women's health. And it's been a pleasure talking to you today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. The views and nutritional advice expressed by Dr. Fiona Lovely are not intended to be a substitute for conventional medical service. 
If you have or suspect that you have a medical problem, promptly contact your healthcare provider. No information offered here should be interpreted as a diagnosis of any disease, nor an attempt to treat or prevent or cure any disease or condition. As with any new advice or program, you should always contact your healthcare provider prior to starting anything new. Thank you.